If you have a Bible, if you would open it to me, the book, to the book of First Thessalonians. This morning we'll be in chapter two. So as we get started, just by way of background, the Apostle Paul, along with a young guy by the name of Timothy and another a Jewish guy that had come up from Jerusalem uh, named Silas, and this guy that they met in Troas named Luke, it responded to the call of God to go over to Macedonia, where they were on the Asian continent, and Macedonia is in Eastern Europe. In Macedonia, it was a region in what would we would look at now as northern Greece. So during their first stop in Macedonia at a city called Philippi, it encountered great difficulty as Paul and Silas had been beaten, thrown into the dungeon, into the inner prison is how it's rendered, which meant, and that was a dark place, no windows, it was the dungeon, essentially. They were tossed into the dungeon there at Philippi. So afterwards, uh, I'd love to go into the story again, and we'll talk about it a little bit this morning, but uh, they left Luke in Philippi, and uh, Paul and Timothy and Silas now traveled to, they went west to the city of Thessalonica, still in Macedonia, uh, and that's where they spent the next three Sabbaths, if you remember, in Acts 17, at the synagogue there. A tremendous work of God had then begun in that city. So some of the Jews at Thessalonica, uh, they became envious. They, they became jealous of the, the work and jealous of the crowds, no doubt. And so they went down to the marketplace, got some rabble rousers and came against Paul publicly and, uh, and with his companions. And so they went to the magistrates of the city. Now, the magistrates, in turn, went to the house of a man by the name of Jason, who was putting up Paul and the guys, and they couldn't find Paul, so they hauled Jason in uh, and brought him in. They interrogated him, actually. Uh, he ends up having to post bail, and at that point, Paul was strongly encouraged, time for you to leave. <laughs> so he did. He left town. He went to a city called Berea, which is a short distance away, and... Uh, Soon enough, their problems literally followed them there. We're told that the Jews from Thessalonica got on to, and Paul's down and he's over in Berea now. All right, let's charge over there and let's stir it up. So they did. As a result, it was time for Paul to leave Berea. So uh, in doing so, he had given Timothy the charge to go back to Thessalonica, the city next door, essentially. It was just a few miles away. Uh, and to encourage the infant church there that had, they had only been there for a short period of time. Some say upwards of two months. We don't know, but we do know that they only had three days or three Sabbaths in the synagogue where they were preaching to the people there. So Paul goes on to Athens at that point. Later on, he makes the, the journey west. Uh, again, not a long distance, but west to the city of Corinth. So I'm going to note something in this that I think is worth bringing out, the reception that Paul received in Macedonia would have likely caused many of us to question whether or not it was the leading of the Holy Spirit to go there. Why? Well, remember, he saw this vision of the man in Macedonia saying, come over and help us when they were there at Troas. And so they went over. But immediately, the ministry ran into huge difficulties. A lesser person than Paul would likely have concluded it was somehow a mistake for them to go there because after all, could God be in this because it got hard? And they probably would have headed off somewhere else. We'll talk about that and how that applies to us as we go along. But remember also, when the Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Thessalonica, he's writing to his, this letter, he's writing from Corinth to Thessalonica, he's writing to his spiritual, and I want to underscore spiritual, children, all right? He was there, he was their dad in the Lord. I, I had one, I don't know if you did, but I, I remember very clearly for nearly 30 years, I, I sat under and was discipled by, uh, my pastor Bob, uh, in Northern California. Wonderful experience. Great learning, great time. Uh, and so Paul now is writing to his spiritual children here in Thessalonica. No doubt he saw some of their faces in his mind as he wrote because he was personal. We don't get a lot of the personal interaction between Paul and the people, but he didn't just get up there, preach a sermon, and then disappear out the back door. 
He was an evangelist, yes, but he was also a pastor. And he had a shepherd's heart. We'll see that very clearly as we go through the text this morning. So as we studied and we saw last week, the faith of these young believers, according to Paul, it had spread throughout Greece and through the entire region. Uh, exciting times. This, like I said, the church exploded at Thessalonica. Now, I want to remind you that what happened at Thessalonica, it, it was not a revival, okay? They had no knowledge of Christ before that. <laughs> I mean, if you come up with a word, we would call it a Bible, I guess. I don't know. But, but essentially, this was new stuff. It was the beginning of the Thessalonians' commitment to Christ, their excitement for him, and they carried out that witness under the inspiration and the leading and the guiding of God's Spirit. This was a, a, a brand new work. And these people, they were like weeks old in the Lord uh, at most when Paul had to leave town. So as he now wrote from Corinth, uh, we saw in chapter 1 that there was much that he was thankful for concerning these people. Uh, we've looked at four things, and I'll just recap briefly which he specifically lays out in chapter 1. The first is that these people had gotten saved. They had forsaken the pagan idols that they had once worshipped and worshipped up until that time. Remember, this is not a religious group. This is a pagan group. They are Gentiles. They are worshipping idols. And then this guy comes into town with with him and his buddies, begins to share Christ with them, and all of a sudden, they're turning their back on these things that they had known all their lives. And he's commending them for that. He says, you've turned from the idols that you once worshipped, and you've not just from the idols, but to the, the true and living God. He tells them in verse 6 that they'd become followers of them and followers of the Lord. I talked about Big Jim last week, if you were here. A guy that had became followers of us as we pointed the way to Jesus and became a follower of the Lord. Very much how that works when we disciple other people. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So the other thing about that is they received the Lord in the midst of really tough circumstances. Persecution was real. Persecution against these new believers was heavy. It was intense at times. You saw what happened to Paul. It didn't stop with Paul. It continued on. And no doubt when Timothy got back to Corinth, when he and Silas were reunited with Paul, they had some things to share. And we'll see, we don't get a lot of what Timothy would have shared about what happened at the church after Paul left, but we can infer that there was a lot because we see by the nature of Paul's responses now that he's addressing issues that were current and relevant for what they were going through at Thessalonica. So uh, they had experienced also the power of the Holy Spirit. The person and the work of Jesus had been demonstrated to them from the scriptures, from what we call the Old Testament, new again to these people, but they were seeing that these were things that had come true, that these were things that had been forecast, prophesied ahead of time, centuries ahead of time in many cases, that now had been lived out in the person and the work of Jesus. The the fact that he came, that he was the Lamb of God, that he did go to that cross, that he did raise from the dead, and that he does give life to all who would believe. Powerful, powerful stuff going on. They responded, essentially they responded to the gospel. So what does gospel mean? Essentially it means good news. And what better news than what they were being educated in, what they were being informed of, was that they had been delivered from the penalty of sin in their lives individually. What's the penalty of sin? Death, eternal death. Now I'm not talking about physical death, I'm talking about spiritual death. That you are not made, Ephesians chapter 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and it goes on to say, but God, being rich in mercy, saved us. They're coming into a knowledge of this, and and I mean, they are getting lit up. This is a powerful, exciting time. Not only were they delivered from the penalty of sin, they were understanding that now they could be delivered from the power of sin. And folks, this is so important for us to understand. You do not have to be captivated. You do not have to be captive to the sin that easily can beset any of us. Because God, by his Holy Spirit, will give us the power to resist. To, he'll give us the power. If we're willing to cooperate with the work of his Spirit, he will give us the ability to overcome those things. And we're all in process. Talk about that too as we go along. So he'd been very clear with them that the work that they had done among them was not the work of man. This was a work of God. There's no way that these men in that short amount of time could have accomplished that which was going on. 
As a result, the third thing we looked at here is that the church was uh, serving the Lord, being influential, not only in the city of Thessalonica, but as I mentioned, their influence had gone out to the entire region. He says all of Achaia, all of Macedonia and beyond, because Thessalonica was at a crossroads. It was on the, um, I think it was the Appian Way, where it was a main highway that went across the empire. It was also a big seaport, and ships were coming and going all day, every day. And so their influence was was spreading far and wide, and he commends them for it. So not only were they serving the Lord, but they were also looking, and this was important as we wrapped up last week, they were looking for the Lord's return. And folks, we need to be a people that are looking for the Lord's return. That is that is currently a promise. It was a promise to them. They they were looking, and that they missed it didn't mean they were wrong. It means that they were they were in an attitude or a posture of expectancy. And what we talked about is that just that one that one item, that one understanding. If I am expecting the Lord's return imminently, and it is imminent, it will happen. It's going to shape the way I live. It's going to shape my understanding of the world around me. It's going to shape my understanding of God's word. It's going to shape my discipleship to the Lord. How I respond in situations, what I believe is all important. So he commends them for that as well. So now heading into the second chapter of Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, actually in chapter two and in chapter three, Paul shares some remarkable things about his, uh, his, with regard to ministry and with regard to his own heart. Uh, this is a, a, just a great passage. So if you're a Bible school student, university students, listen up. Uh, if you're going to seminary, you're looking to be in ministry in one fashion or another, certainly you want to hear the things that are spoken here in 1 Thessalonians 2. Recognize also, though, that if you're a mom or you're a dad, you're in ministry. End of story, period. You, you are a minister. If you're a school teacher and you're a Christian, you're in ministry. If you're a human being and you're born again and you're breathing and you have a pulse, you're in ministry. This isn't for a select few. This isn't for clergy and then there's laity. No, 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 no. Take an eraser. Erase those lines. This is for all of us. There is great application for every single one of us in this passage. The Bible tells us that all of us are ministers. In the New Testament, we're told that, that each of us is a servant and a minister. Now, there are some great things that are put in front of us here. Paul's going to say, look, we have a message, but around that are certain things that we should stay away from. There are certain things that we should not do. There are certain things that we should do. And he goes into, into some detail here in this passage with both. Because if we get caught up in those things, he says, look, it can contaminate, disqualify our witness with Christ. This is important stuff. Now, when he says that there are certain things that we should do, uh, folks, if you want to be in ministry, Paul says, take a serious look at those things. He gives us some great exhortations here in the first 12 verses of 1 Thessalonians 2, and that's where we're at this morning. Now, the way this breaks down is in verses 1 through 6, Paul goes into detail, gives a defense uh, as to what they, he, Silas, and Timothy are not about. It's very clear. He draws some very clear lines. In verses 6 through 12, we see Paul's heart as a ser- servant and as a, as a shepherd. He, he was, yes, a great evangelist, but he was also, he also had a shepherd's, a pastor's heart. And we see that very clearly in this. So let's pick it up in verse 1. He says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, when he says, for you yourselves, no, this begins a section where Paul defends his own character and ministry before the Thessalonians. Again, inferring that he had heard that things were pretty rough. They were making some accusations back in Thessalonica after his departure. It wasn't a personal issue for Paul. He's not doing this because he's somehow offended, but he knew that these things mattered for the sake of the gospel. Uh, he understood that if the messenger was discredited, the message itself could be discredited. And so he's being very careful here to illustrate, look, we are messengers of God in this. And we want you to understand that that we're blameless. We'll get to that. It's it, it Also, keep in mind, too, this wasn't because Paul was insecure about his ministry. <laughs> he, he was very secure. He, it was that he had many enemies in Thessalonica, as we saw in Acts 17. Paul's enemies likely claimed that he had left town quickly, that he was some kind of a, a self-serving coward, 
Oh, well, yeah, he, yeah, he was out of here only three weeks. <laughs> yeah, we know what happened to him. You know, that would have been the attitude that his detractors were putting forth. So when he says that we didn't do this in vain, uh, now, vain, the word vain in, in the original language is a great word. Uh, it can be translated as empty or hollow or futile or without value or purpose. So he's saying, look, we didn't come to you with some vain message. What we shared with you wasn't empty. It wasn't hollow. What we shared with you was substantial. It, there is substance to the message of the gospel. So he's telling them that that's how, that's not how we came to you. On the contrary, there's great value in the things that we shared. And to your credit, you saw it and you responded. Verse 2, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. So not only did they endure suffering, but the Philippian officials had, they dished out a punishment in a shameful way, really. Uh, they had been spitefully treated, is what Paul says here. And the Greek word again for spitefully means that the, Phil- the Philippians, they had publicly abused them. Their intent was to humiliate them, to make an example, a public spectacle of he and Silas when they beat them publicly in front of the, t- the, the, they were at the town square when that happened. So when the Philippian authorities found out that Paul and Silas, or Paul was a Roman citizen, Silas as well, uh, even though he was from Jerusalem, they, they essentially said, will you please leave town? They wanted them to quietly sneak out of town. And Paul said, no, no. They refused to go until the authorities came and they came to them in person at the prison. And Paul was able then to ensure that the future of the Philippian church would not suffer the kind of persecution that they had. That was his whole intent in doing that. So his point in all of this with the Thessalonians now, he's demonstrating the fact that it would be completely illogical. It would be absurd for them to somehow be carrying out selfish motives in the midst of all the trouble that they'd endured. He's saying, look, we didn't go through all of that so that you could come, we could come to you and you could just call us names. That's, it doesn't make sense. We're not doing this for some weird motive and, and going through all of the beatings and the imprisonment and getting chased out of town and getting tracked down by a mob, an angry mob. He said, we didn't do any of that because we had some kind of weird motives. We did it from a sincere heart because you need to know Jesus. And you need to understand the nature of the gospel message that we bring. Interesting, out of the crucible of Philippi came the pure gold of Thessalonica. I mean, yeah, things were tough at Thessalonica, but you know, and I believe that when these men got there, when they showed up in Thessalonica, because they left Philippi and immediately went to Thessalonica, as I mentioned before, they probably still had open wounds. Welts, bruises, perhaps not on their head, whatever it was. I mean, uh, they were severely beaten. And that in itself was should have been a testimony to the Thessalonians that, look, we're not doing this for some obscure motive, for some selfish or greedy gain. We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't endure this if that was the case. Verse 3, uh, then he says, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. So here Paul addresses three of the allegations that evidently had been brought to bear against him and, and the guys uh, it, as he talks about their message, their morals, and their manner of communication while they were among them. The word error means delusion, and it carries the idea of teaching heresy. He's saying, look, we showed up there. We didn't teach you heresy by giving you bad spiritual food. And that's essentially what heresy is. There's good spiritual food, and that's great. Hey, there's heresy. That's bad food. Stay away from it. And I'll tell you, we'll talk about it as we go. There's a way to identify it because all of us could be subjected to that. It can be very, very uh, kind of slimy the way that it gets put forth. The second thing he mentions here is uncleanness. And what that means is to be impure or to have had impure or ulterior motives. He's telling them his motives were pure. He was not using religion for personal gain. <clears throat> As a lot of people do. Uh, more on that in a moment. i get a rabbit trail on that. He also mentions deceit. The Greek word for deceit, it, it, what it, to, to, because Greek, uh, Koine Greek is, uh, and I'm giving you a lot of definitions here, because English very often just doesn't do the text justice, that there's a richness to the land, and there's a reason why 
That was the language of the day in the time that this was written because there's just a richness. And so when we read the word deceit, what it means is craftiness or trickery or fraud. It speaks of a method that would be used to trap or to catch another. Interestingly, it's the word that's used for bait. (laughs) I thought this was fascinating. Now, fishermen cover a hook with bait. They make that thing look attractive to the fish. I mean, (laughs) if you've ever had slimy bait in your head, it's not attractive to us. But they make it look attractive. They cover the hook with bait. Because the whole intent is to get that fish to bite the hook, not knowing that there's something inside of that bait that's going to (laughs) really... They're going to get reeled in. So he's not, what Paul's saying here is, he's, look, I'm not out to trap you. I'm not out here to bait you. I, I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to get people to follow me by, by this cunning, crafty, scheming thing. That's what false teachers did and still do. That's what false apostles did and still do. It's not what Paul did. He wanted people to follow the Lord. Verse four. So, He says, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. I love that. I love the way that that's rendered. Uh, Essentially what he's saying is being entrusted with the gospel. For Paul, it was a sacred stewardship. He's saying, look, I take this seriously. It's not some weird motive. It's not for dishonest gain or some thing out there to manipulate manipulate you or employ some formula. I'm doing this because I take the gospel of Christ seriously. And I'll believe me, if you had Jesus knock you off of a horse and you heard his voice on a road (laughs) and you were blinded until some guy prophesied over you and said, I'm sending you before Gentiles and kings and all of that, you would be thinking, you know, maybe this is a serious message. And we get to read it and respond to it Folks, we can respond in the same way. We can either, you know, I remember when I got saved, I was like, <laughs> the guy who made an altar call, you ain't going to manipulate me. <laughs> oh, no, sir. And, and, and that pastor had the wisdom to just let, to just let that invitation to receive Christ hang in the room. Seemed like an hour, probably 45 seconds later, and my heart was pounding out of my chest. My palms were sweaty. And when God gave him a word, and he said, I don't know who you are. This is a room of about 350 people. But I want to encourage you, my friend, let go. Give your life to Jesus. And I broke. But that's what he's talking about here. He says, you know, <laughs> I've been entrusted with the sacred stewardship of the gospel. And, and, and he was a steward. He was approved by God. The gospel was this precious treasure that he had, and he wanted to make sure that it was shared with others and that it was shared accurately. Folks, that should be the intention of our heart. I would never, ever want anybody to think that I was using some kind of weird manipulation to get people into the kingdom. Because if I can talk you into something, guess what? Somebody else can talk you out of it. But if God does the work, whole different story. So it was it was clear to Paul also that he couldn't please God and man at the same time. And we'll talk about that later on too as we go. Because he says God is the one that tests men's hearts. He talks about how their hearts were tested in verse 5. He says, For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetous covetousness. God is witness. So once again, Paul appeals to what people, the people had seen themselves. He's saying, look, you saw us. You experienced us. You heard it. The Spirit took that word, drove it into your heart. He says, look, remember, they'd only been at their, at their, at their fellowship or at their synagogue for three Sabbaths. Couldn't have been with them any longer than two months. But during that period of time, they'd had opportunity not only to listen to Paul's words, but to watch his life, to see him as a man. So he's emphasizing this. Flattery. Now, the word flattery here, again, it's another rich Greek word. It means to speak in such a way as to gratify another's vanity. Have you ever had somebody flatter you and you know there's an end game? And what makes me kind of bonkers is when somebody is flattering me and and they think I don't realize that they're flattering me. (laughs) Like, seriously? And understand, too, that sometimes people are just affirming and receive it. It, it. This is free. But receive it if somebody's affirming you. Because we are to, to promote a culture of affirmation among one another. But there are those times where there's an end game. And he's saying, we weren't doing that. We didn't have an end game other than to see you convert from darkness to light, to go from death to life. Kind of an important point to make in someone's life, you think? Yeah. So 
as we look at flattery, and just the essence of it is, is it's used in order to gain something from somebody else. Power, control over other people, favor from them. Here's something that's, that, I, that someone wrote that, that I, I thought was good. He says, flattery is used to entice for success, wealth, and prosperity, often with a formula. So first of all, Paul never stopped the to, uh, he, he never stooped to flattery. He, he, you don't see that in any of his, he, he never, he, he wasn't like, oh, you didn't like what I had to say. There's nowhere in the New Testament where you see Jesus or the Apostle Paul, these guys, they don't say, oh, well, you're offended by that? Let me rephrase it. <laughs> That's just not it. He doesn't stoop to that. His words were honest, transparent, free from hot hypocrisy. Now, secondly, he never used the work of the Lord as a cloak under which he could hide a selfish desire for gain, for wealth, or for financial gain, or for you know, getting the goods on somebody else. That wasn't him. So to disprove any charge of flattery, he appeals to the saints. But to disprove any thought of covetousness, he appeals to God. Why would he do that? Because God is the one who sees the things that are done in secret. God is the one who judges and weighs men's hearts. He's the only one that can read the heart. We don't have the ability to do that, folks. You got to be careful. When you start to presume that you understand the condition of another's heart, be careful. Uh, I've shared many times in our fellowship that if you want to think that you know what God's will is for uh, somebody else, including the person sitting next to you, including the person that might be wearing your ring, be careful. We are all in process. God is working this work of sanctification in all of our lives, all of our hearts, and we cannot because we don't know the heart, we don't know the will of God in that person's life and where they're at in that process of sanctification. I might see some glaring thing. God's not working on that right now. But he might be working on this other deal. I remember one time I was at a men's, I was teaching at a, a big men's camp. It was like a few hundred guys at this camp up in the Cascades. And, and uh, we were just getting started with the camp. And, and this one guy stepped up and he said, can I say something real quick to the, the pastor that was running it? And, and the guy said, yeah, sure, come on up. So he went up and he said, I just want to ask you guys if you would stop picking on me about smoking cigarettes. He said, you know, I go outside the camp. <laughs> I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> it's like Israel. He said, I go outside the camp and I'm respectful. And, and that's something that I'm working on. But let me tell you what's going on in my life. God has delivered me from heroin addiction. He's given me my family back. And I just hung my head and I thought, oh, Lord, why are people beating him up about that? Got to be careful that we can presume that we think what God's will is in the life of another when he's doing something completely different in another area. We've got to have grace. We've got to be able to allow people to be people and let God work on them. You know what? Again, if I could change you, somebody else can change you back. But when God touches your heart, that's a thing. That's a permanent thing that he does that no man can affect. So... That was a nice rabbit trail. <laughs> Paul wasn't, he wasn't governed or controlled by greed. What he's telling them was true. Now the point that he's making to them is he didn't secretly want more power or more authority or more money. He's not manipulating them. And he adds that God is his witness. Now in Hebrews chapter 4, we read in, in verse 13, he says, all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we must give account. Folks, take that to heart. You got some area that's kind of a secret. God sees it. I'll tell you what, there have been many times in, in, in recent history as well where God will expose something, some, some secret thing in my heart, and he'll say, John, you need to give that up. You need to give that to me. He sees it all. And the amazing thing is he still loves you. He still loves me. But he wants to conform us to the image of his son, and that's part of that process. So whether Paul wrote the book of Hebrews... <clears throat> <laughs> which I have strong leanings towards the fact that he did, but it's not a fact. That's a, that's a guess. Nobody knows. Regardless of that, he certainly had the understanding that God sees the condition and the contents of men's hearts. And he's saying, look, when <laughs> he calls God as his witness, he's stating he has nothing to hide from the one who sees all of it. He's saying, I'm good with the Lord, and I'm good with you. I'm demonstrating to you that I didn't come to you with these weird motives. Verse 6, he says, Nor did we seek the glory from men, either from you or from others, that we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. So 
when Paul was ministering among the Thessalonians, uh, he was unconcerned for personal glory. He didn't need fancy introductions, lavish praise. He didn't show up and say, hi there, I'm the apostle Paul, by the way. You know that one you heard about? Oh yeah, we're going to have a rally tonight. Hope you can be there. Wink, wink. You know, he thought he wasn't doing that. He wasn't putting on a show. His satisfaction came from his relationship with Jesus, not from the praise of people. Oh, folks, you got to, again, we got to avoid that. Uh, I, I love the ditty, avoid the the inflation that comes from adulation, which is undue praise. It, you got to be careful. Don't Don't start believing your own press clippings. I'm telling you, it's dangerous. It's a slippery slope. But also avoid the deflation that comes from flagellation. Every now and then the people will come up and it's like, wow, thanks so much for thrashing me. I think I'll go home and try to drink some water. It leaks out of my body. You know, it, it, there's those times where, you know, folks, we've got to avoid both. We don't want to be the person that's puffing somebody else up because, again, that can be a form of manipulation. And I want to be clear. I'm not saying that we don't affirm. I am very affirmed, and I love you guys. I love that that I, I'm very I'm, and I'm affirmed, I, I, and I get that. But I also get that I can't get puffed up, nor can you. So avoid the inflation that comes from adulation. Avoid the deflation that comes from flagellation, because sometimes people will flog you, and that's just how it is. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Let nothing, nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So when he talks about selfish ambition, I always think about in the pastoral epistles where Paul, he talks about uh, the difference. He talks about if a man aspires to the office of overseer, that's a godly aspiration. That's something that God puts in people's hearts. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. And, and there and God may put that in people's heart years before he brings it to pass, because that's an, there's a period of preparation. Talked about that last week. However, a man can also be selfishly ambitious. It can look the same on the outside. Again, Lord, show me my heart. Show me the attitude of my heart that's driving this. Do I really have other people in mind? Paul had other people. He was clearly other-centered. There wasn't a self-centered attitude or aspect to his ministry. Essentially, what he's saying is he wasn't among the Thessalonians to take something from them. He was among them to give something to them. He didn't come to make demands as a capital A apostle. In verses 7 through 11 now, Paul pivots from telling us what the ministry is not to what being in ministry is, as God intended serving him to be. This is great instruction. It's a great passage. It's a remarkable, tender passage. He's going to compare himself to a mother. He's going to tell him, essentially in part of it, this is mother stuff. And then he's going to turn around, he's going to compare himself to a father and say, this is father stuff. Uh, remember, this is a guy who was formerly the hater of the church. This is a guy who was the persecutor, the guy that tracked down and was responsible for the murder of Christians. Now, as he writes this, keep that in mind as you read this and think about the transforming power of the gospel in this man's life. He went from that to this. Interesting stuff. Verse 7, we're going to read verse 7 through 9 together. He says, But you were gent- we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own life, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you, the gospel of God. Beautiful passage. It's also a picture of what a nursing mother does continually. I'm taking this on, uh, you know, just on observation. <laughs> don't have, yeah. <laughs> but, but it's true. He says, you know, you remember, brethren, our labor and our toil, the King James's travail. Now, every woman who's been a nursing mom at home remembers her labor and her travail. <laughs> I don't. Praise God. But, <laughs> When he's speaking here, he speaks, he speaks of laboring night and day. What he's talking about in practical terms, he's talking about his tent making business. He was a tent maker. He had skills that he used because he didn't want to be a burden to them. All right. And that's not to say that vocational ministry is a bad thing. We live in a completely different culture. But what he's saying is, look, I didn't want to be a burden. I wasn't going to come and charge you for what I was doing. I'm not going to be a financial burden for you. 
He says, we labored night and day because we didn't want to be a burden to anybody. Uh, we didn't we, we didn't give you a bill. <laughs> we didn't ask you to support us when we preached the gospel to you. And okay, so here you go. No, it's, 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 he's saying, look, here's the context. We were gentle among you. We were tender when we came to you. As a nursing mother with her own nursing child, we were yearning for you and longing for you because you were and are dear to us. Very tender words. It was nothing for us to labor night and day. That was just part of what God had called us to do. It wasn't, it, it wasn't a hard thing for us because we love you. There's something to note here. The word ministry means serving. It means to serve, to be a servant. And what he's saying here is we came to serve you. Uh, I'd love to, very often Pastor Chuck would remind the people, he, he would say, look, God has called me to be as a shepherd of the flock to serve you. And he'd say, that's why, and I, in all of the years I was exposed to Pastor Chuck's ministry, very, 30 years, whatever it was, I never once heard him ask for money. Was that because the church didn't have, need money to offer? No, it wasn't. But he would say, look, I'm not up here gonna, I'm gonna be up here begging for bucks from you every Sunday. Yeah, and he understood that, you know, how the church operates. He says, because in doing that, I'm asking you to minister to me. And that's backwards from what God has called me to. I'm here to minister to you. And I love that attitude. It's an attitude that we have towards giving in this church. That's why you don't hear it taught on a lot. Yeah, is it an act of obedience, an act of worship? Absolutely, it is. But we're not here for your money. We're not here for some sordid gain. We're not here to enrich ourselves. <laughs> I've got job skills, believe me. I could be doing better. But I, but I, and the church takes care of me. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that the motive of our hearts is not job security. The motive of our hearts is we want to see you grow. In, in the grace and the knowledge of him. We want to see people, see people step into the kingdom of God to come, as I said, from darkness to light, from death to life. We want to see people take hold of Christ in a meaningful way to find real resolution, to find answers to the issues in their lives that they're dealing with because he's personal. That's what we're about. And that's what Paul's saying here. We weren't a burden. We didn't come to you because we had some weird financial motive. And believe me, that happens out there, but it ain't happening here, and nor will it. <laughs> He's saying, look, it's not a, it's not a, it wouldn't be an issue for a nursing mom who cherishes, yearns for that baby uh, to take care of it. It's a time-intensive undertaking. It's, so is serving the Lord in whatever capacity you serve. Uh, now, I want to, Don McClure, He's an old-time Calvary Chapel guy. He's sort of the de facto head of the Calvary Chapel Association which is an association of pastors, really. I mean, we're not a denomination. We, you know, Every church is independent. I'm not going to get into all that. But a very well-respected guy in, in Calvary circles, <laughs> he said the difference between a pastor and, evang- and an evangelist is this. He said, you go to the hospital when a baby is born, and there's the dad. He's the evangelist. He's the guy standing outside looking through the window into the nursery there where all the babies are, a couple of his friends come by, he, he hands out cigars, and he, he's telling them, I did that. <laughs> the pastor in this illustration is the mother. She's the one that, she's lying there all beat up, wrung out, thinking, I, I gotta take care of this thing for the next 18 years. And I, I love that, that just the difference between the evangelist and the pastor, because the pastor is charged with shepherding the flock, with caring for them. And Paul is, he, and through this whole passage, he's saying, look, that's my heart. I want to care for you. It's not hard. Yeah, you go through difficult stuff. Yeah, you're dealing with people all the time. Yeah, it, it, it can be hard. And the hours are long. Believe me, <laughs> you, you don't punch a clock when you're in ministry. He's saying, you know what? The nature of it is because we tenderly care for you. You are dear to us. And folks, I, I got a long ways to go to aspire to the Apostle Paul, but you want to know something? You are dear to me. You are dear to us. And, and, and that love runs so deep. Uh, I, I'll tell you, I, it, I'm not going to go there. I'll get all emotional. All right. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> get it together, John. Verse 10. <laughs> he says, you are witnesses in God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. So Paul wanted people to look to Jesus. He, <laughs> but he couldn't do that by just saying, look to Jesus. He also wanted them to look at his life. Because the manifestation of Jesus through the agency of the Holy Spirit was real in his life. In other words, he lived it. And he's saying, look, 
look, I'm living it. This is not something, I'm not some phony. I'm living this. I'm walking this out. I'm in the same boat as you. Yeah, I've got issues, problems. If you look through the, the New Testament, there are, there are areas and passages where you say, well, this guy, this guy had some issues. And he did. I mean, I remember when he lost his temper with the high priest there in the book of Acts. I mean, he would, he had areas that God was working in his life as well as you and I have areas where God is working in ours. That's why we must be strong in the grace. That's why we need to have grace for one another. We're all in this together. We are all in process. We are all broken in ways and I'm broken in different ways than you. But guess what? We've got the love of Christ that compels us forward. We've got the Spirit of God that is transforming our hearts from the inside out. We've got this powerful thing called the church, which is where we come together. This morning, our prayer, I looked out and I said, y'all are happy. And uh, someone corrected me and said, wait, 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 joyful. Yeah, that's right. Thanks for the correction. A joyful bunch. We're all just sitting there getting ready to pray. And everybody was just filled with the joy of the Lord. And I thought, what, Lord, what a privilege. What a privilege to be here among these people who want to pray, who want to worship, who want to serve, is we have a great team of servants here, and we're expanding that. So we'll get to that if that's something you filled out. But my point is, is that we're part of something larger than ourselves, the body of Christ. And Paul is appealing to this body and saying, look, there's something that's going on with you that's bigger than your individual parts. Your witness is blowing up throughout the whole region. Your effectiveness is there because you are serving Christ. And we, with pure motives, came to serve you. He uses three words in verse 10 to describe their actions towards uh, them here. So the first is devoutly. What he was saying there is he lived his life before them in a holy manner. And what I mean by that is that he lived a life of purity. He lived his life out in front. Again, God is working in us. God is giving us. He is sharing his holiness with us. That's what the New Testament puts forth. We don't autumn, yeah, we are declared holy the moment we believe in Christ by declaration. I am now seen as a holy one. That's what the word saint means. And now he is making me holy. He is sanctifying me, which if you take that word and you run it out, it means he is holifying me. So what he's saying here is, look, I, I just want to live my life out in front of you. I want to live this. I want to live in a devout way. They could see that this man was dedicated, separated to God. His heart was to honor God with his life. And that's the point. Secondly, he says, we were, we lived justly uh, among you. We were, we were devout and we were also living justly, which means that he was living, living in an upright or a righteous manner. And, and his behavior showed, proved that out, that he lived devoutly and justly among them. He says, you're my witnesses. You, you saw how we lived. We lived blamelessly among you. Now you can also you could interchange that with the word honestly. We lived honestly among you. The, 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 essentially, the Greek word here means not able to find fault. We lived in a in a, a in a manner that you were not able to find fault with us. Now, as he describes their disposition as living devoutly, justly, and blamelessly among them, he's essentially speaking of their overall reputation with them. He's saying, "Look, we lived in an upright manner." We lived in a reputable way among you. I want to be careful here too. And I want to bring this out. This is very important. Our salvation is not based upon how devoutly, justly, or blamelessly we behave towards others. It's not the basis of it. Because outside of Christ, (laughs) we would never accomplish any of that. Uh, You're certainly not going to get it from some self-help program or through your own efforts. This is something that God does. So, while these are qualities which will never add up to salvation or add up to a relationship with God, they are certainly the product of it. And again, we're all in process. These are areas where God is working in each of our lives. That's why it's dangerous to start looking and finding fault with others. It's very dangerous and it destroys our fellowship and it puts us in a place of hypocrisy because, again, we all have areas. It's not our job. God didn't appoint us as fruit inspectors. Okay, that's not that's not what that's not what we're to do. You look hard enough, you're going to find fault in my life or anyone else. So the point that Paul's making in this is not that he had achieved some aspect of Christian perfection. He simply wanted to remind them that in the face of all these false accusations, to look and see what kind of man that he and Silas and Timothy had been 
while they were with them. Verse 11, he says, As you know, we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. So now he shifts. Instead of talking about that of a mother, the nurturing and all of that, he shifts to, as a father now, we exhorted, we comforted, we charged you. Those are kind of manly things now that he's talking about, he's putting forth. He says in the in verse 11, the word exhorted literal, literally means to call alongside, okay? Uh, and if you run that out a little bit, it means to call alongside for the purpose of guiding and directing and instructing. So he says, we exhorted you. We came alongside. We, we wanted to get you into an attitude of being guided, being directed, being instructed. So think about it. <laughs> Paul wrote this letter to a group of believers. The earliest believers, as I mentioned in Thessalonica, were no more than a year old in the Lord. This was written no more than a year after he had been there. And in that, it's easy, folks, for new believers to become discouraged. I've seen it, dealt with it, sadly seen people walk away because the challenge has come. I'm reminded here of the parable of the sower. And there, Jesus talks about the seed that was cast. He goes into four conditions of human hearts. The seed that's cast by the sower. The sower being him, the seed being the word of God. Breaking into the middle of that, in Matthew 13, verses 16 and 17, we read, he says, These likewise are the ones, the seeds sown in stony ground, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. Yay! Yeah, good, good stuff. But they have no root in themselves, and so they endure only for a time. He said, afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. So it's easy for new believers to become discouraged, especially in the face of persecution. And that's exactly what's going on at Thessalonica. That's why he is writing these things to them. He understands that there are specific challenges that they have to overcome in order to grow in their relationship with Christ. He's saying, look, remember when I was with you, I came alongside you, I guided you, I directed you, I instructed you, remember that. He says, I also comforted you. Now, the word comfort, it means to comfort someone or to bring consolation. And a necessary and good thing for us to do is to bring comfort and consolation to others. The minute I heard about Scott's father passing away last night, I shot a text off to him and let him know that he was loved and that we care and we're praying. It's just to console. Uh, brothers and sisters, this is something that's really essential. Again, this isn't clergy and laity. This is Christian stuff. We're to bring comfort, consolation to one another, which is, you know, it's kind of the opposite of finding fault with others. It's, it's finding that common ground to be able to say, you know, my heart hurts for you. I have true empathy for the things you're enduring, the things you're going through. Vital that our, our lives are marked by these kinds of attitudes. The word charge in verse 11 means to implore, to urge. And we need those folks. <laughs> Put it simply, he's saying, I love you as a good father loves his children. I'm going to challenge you. I remember my kids were growing up. I would challenge them. <laughs> oh, I had a couple of stories, but I got to move because we're almost out of time. Essentially what he's saying, though, is hang in there. I know it's hard. And the Thessalonians were under severe persecution. They were coming under it. He says, you know, the world's coming after you. The devil's after you. Life's not easy. The enemy's working overtime. Look to God. Keep your focus on the Lord. And folks, we all get hit by hard circumstances at times. And it's so important to put our focus on the Lord in the midst of those circumstances because if we start to get focused on the circumstances themselves, guess what? Not going to be long before you're overwhelmed. And God wants to be the one that we come to in the midst of those times. He says, Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me. When you're weary, you're heavily laden. Learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. My load is easy. My burden is light. You'll find rest for your soul. All of that. That's why he's reminding them here in First Thessalonians in every chapter. The Every chapter ends with uh, a, a, a reminder that they're waiting for the Lord's return. That's why he's doing that here. And in Second Thessalonians, the same thing. He keeps that tremendous hope that they have, that tremendous hope that we have in front of them. And part of my prayer in this study is that we understand that that hope that we have of the Lord coming back for his church, that we keep that in front of us. Because when I have that in front of me, my problems seem to, they just, they're not, it's not that they get insignificant, but they come into perspective. I have great perspective. I have great comfort 
in the hope that I have in Jesus' return. And that's why he's doing this. So in this one passage, Paul says, I was like a mother to you, caring for you tenderly, nurturing, loving you. And then he also, at the same time, he says, I was also like a father to you, encouraging, exhorting you, hang in there as a father would care for his own children. So what was the point of exhorting and comforting and nurturing and all of that? Verse 12, he said that you would walk worthy. I could stop right there with that verse and it would be enough. But he goes on because there's some good stuff to unpack in it. He said that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul's encouraging and comforting, comforting, pouring into them had a point to it, that they would walk worthy of the Lord. And folks, that's the point of this morning's message, that we would walk worthy of the Lord. Do we always? If if not, he gives us the, this wonderful mechanism called repentance to where we we allow him to identify things in our lives and we turn from those things and then we're restored. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us for our sins, to cleanse us from some unrighteousness. No, it's not what it says. It's to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That relationship is restored. That fellowship with his spirit is restored. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is interesting because he's there to empower us. He's there to empower our lives. But when we get out there and we get to bing it along in some area where we shouldn't be, that ministry changes. He goes from from that of empowering to kind of coming around in front of us to head us off at the pass. And now that ministry is convicting us. He's saying, look, John, you need to get this area right in your life. You need to take this and you need to get this dealt with. If that's you this morning, deal with it. I invite you. He's not a cruel God. He's not some taskmaster. But as we do that, and as we say, Lord, I agree with you, that's what the word confessed in 1 John 1, 9 means. It means to agree with. I agree with you, God, that is sin. That is something that's getting in the way of my relationship with you. And I and I turn from that now. And I embrace Jesus in a fresh way. And I'll tell you what, he goes right back then to empowering our lives. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's a, a very practical aspect of his ministry day to day in our lives. So Deal with the Lord in your own heart this morning. If there's something that's coming between you and him, allow him to minister to you in a loving and tender and special way as he does the work that only he can do. Uh, he has at the very end of this, he says, he calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, Paul had already written to them in chapter one that they had been elect and chosen by God. And they already knew that, but he repeats it. Now he applies it here. They've been chosen by God. They were citizens of the redeemed kingdom, the one that God is ruling over presently. And I want to underscore presently. The Bible Bible teaches in the New Testament, we are presently citizens of God's kingdom. If you know Jesus this morning, you are a citizen as such. Right now, we share the glory of God when we share the gospel of his son with others. That's what the Thessalonians were doing. We share in the glory of God when we manifest the character, the nature of Jesus personally in our lives as we reach out to a lost and hurting and screwed up and upside down world. It's glorious to be used of God. It's glorious to walk with him. So let's walk worthy of God who calls us into his own kingdom and glory. Quickly want to apply this. I've got three things I want to go through. We're out of time. I'm sorry, I'm going to run a little bit over. (laughs) <laughs> or a lot of work. Um, first thing I want to look at is please God, serve man. Never the other way around. <laughs> you're, you're not gonna, you're not gonna please men. You're not gonna serve God by pleasing men. You're living in a, a way that's pleasing to God as you serve men. So, as mentioned, all of us are called to ministry, to serve in one capacity or another. Maybe that's at home, maybe that's in the church. That's something that gets worked out along the way. We do well to examine our hearts Asking God to reveal our motives. Is it a fleshly motive? Do I want to be seen? Do it? What is it? What's going on? What is? The, and and God will show us our hearts. He's faithful and, and true. Paul, you know, he could have, as I mentioned, he could have packed it in. The minute things got rough at Philippi, the minute things started heavy, he could have, he said, "You know what? This is too much trouble." He would never have gone to Thessalonica, <laughs> but he ran into the same thing there. A lot of trouble. No, he could have packed it in there. No, 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 but he went to Berea. (laughs) Same thing there. He didn't. Why? Because Paul was secure in the call of God upon his life. Absolutely secure. Serving God. Ministry. It's often hard. 
thankless, difficult work. And I'm not saying that because I somehow feel unappreciated. As I mentioned, I am affirmed. I, you know, and, and, and I love that, but that's, y'all are very affirming. But the difference between living to please God and living for the approval of men is huge. If I'm living for the approval of men, the minute the men are upset with me, I'm going to be completely sideways. I'm, I'm just going to be wiped out. If I'm living for the approval of men, when people are happy with me, I'm going to be all puffed up. No, I'm doing this for the Lord. I want Him to be the object of my devotion, for Him to be the object of my affection. Out of that, I will love others well. Out of that, I will have balance and integrity and character, godly character in my life. Do you understand how that works? We can't get that the other way around. Very dangerous. What I could put on the shelf serving Him, that's one way to do it. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So here's the key. If I'm seeking the approval of man and the going gets rough, as it often does, I'll be prone to discouragement, disillusionment. Sooner or later, I might conclude it's just too much. I'm done. Paul didn't do, he, he, we will not. I guarantee you, unless, you know, you're, <laughs> some crazy things start to happen. We will not be subjected to the kind of persecution that he was he was subjected to. I mean, this guy was determined, and he was determined to carry out the call of God on his life. If, on the other hand, I'm seeking the approval of God in whatever ministry I have, it becomes a whole lot easier to let the opposition, the trials, the difficulties, just to let them roll off. Lord, I know that's part of it. If you serve the Lord, if we have a real enemy, there's a real God of this world, you got a bullseye on your back, but you know what? Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Being a man pleaser, essentially, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it is. When my heart is fixed on pleasing God, fulfilling my ministry now becomes a labor of love as, to, as opposed to becoming some arduous task. So enough said on that. The second thing I want to look at as we wrap up is don't get hooked. <laughs> and I'm not talking about drugs or Alcohol. I'm not talking about vices. I'm talking about, in verse 3, the word deceit, to bait the hook. There's a boatload of spiritual deception out there, and it's growing. Men have itching ears, heaping to themselves teachers according to their own lusts. Not my opinion, what God's Word puts forth. And, and you know, the deception is real. And it goes from those nicely dressed people that are standing, you're knocking on your front door, <laughs> to that flashy, showy guy in Christian media, to that guy that looks and sounds good, but there's just something that's not right, something that is hitting you wrong, be careful. Don't get hooked. So how do you identify it, Pastor? How do you avoid it? I'm glad you asked. And the answer to that is you do just what you're doing here. You do just what we're doing this morning. We spend time in God's Word. It's what you do when you have devotions at home. It's what you do when you listen or to or you read books that are written by solid, reputable Bible teachers. It's all about studying God's Word. And I love, I have peripheral helps, but I love spending time, just spending time. I start out my studies every week just looking at the text, just interacting with the text, just saying, you know, bread of heaven, feed my soul. As you do that, guess what? You'll spot the error. You'll spot that nicely baited hook because it comes from doing what we're doing here. That's why you came this morning. You wanted to hear God's Word. And, and folks, we're just going to keep studying and teaching God's Word because there is safety. Last thing I want to look at is, uh, I've titled this, Grow Up, Will Ya? <laughs> and I say that in jest. I, I'm not being snarky, I promise. God wasn't working in a vacuum in the Thessalonians' lives. Let me explain. Paul's purpose in writing to this Thessalonian church, it, it, it was to nurture and to challenge them to maturity in Christ. I mean, we see that in the text. We see that in what he's doing as he writes as He puts these things forth. Bringing it home It's my prayer that we don't stop with an intellectual understanding of this letter. Don't stop there. Put it on. Apply God's word to your life like you'd put on a well-fitting pair of boots. I pray that as we comprehend this more deeply that we would have a hunger to apply these things to our lives as God works in us. That's my prayer for us, for you, for me. And as with the Thessalonians, as God worked in them and grew them, we see them reaching out now to others with the precious gift of the salvation in which we stand. We're all ministers. We're all servants of the Most High King. We all have a story to tell, 
with others who will listen, with others with whom God gives us their ear. Let's be a witness. Let's live lives that count. Let's live lives that are consistent with godly character. Have we got work to do? Yeah, all of us do. But that should never deter us from the goal, uh, which is, is, is to be conformed to the image of his son. Let's pray. Father, just in looking at this, is running through this passage, so much there. Lord, let's pray. I pray for myself. I pray for each of my brothers and sisters here that you would, Lord, your word declares that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So, Father, over everything, I pray for hearts that are yielded to your transforming work. Lord, we don't have to get out there and try to push these things through in our own lives. We just simply need to yield to you to understand that you want to change us from the inside out. And so, Lord, as you work, I pray for each one here. Lord, if there's something that's standing in the way of that, I pray for a genuine spirit of repentance. What a privilege it is that we can roll those things off, that we can turn from those things and to embrace you in a deeper, more significant way. Lord, we thank you for the Father's love that you have for us, for the fact that you come to us gently, tenderly, with great intention of, of demonstrating your love to us, perhaps through other people, perhaps through your word this morning. So we ask, Father, that as we leave here today, that you would continue that work, conform us to the image of Jesus, our great hero and king. We give it all to you now in Jesus. And all God's people said,